0: SBS live streams and podcasts are supported by advertising. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which I'm recording from. I pay my respects to the Camaragal people and their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from and extend this respect to any First Nations listeners.
1: get asked so often that I honestly think that I might start printing t-shirts that just say no not even water to preempt people before they can even ask that question because no there is no food there's no drink not even water from before sunrise to after sunset it's a fast but not an Instagram fast like it's a proper fast
0: Hi, I'm Sarah Malik and I am the host of My Ramadan, a podcast about how we experience Ramadan and Eid in modern multicultural Australia. Today we look at the spiritual dimension to Ramadan. How hard is it to maintain a no-swearing no caffeine and no gossiping vibe when you're hungry? Today I chat to academic and writer Susan Carlin on how she reconnects with spirituality and self in Ramadan. Welcome to the show Susan. Thank you, Sarah. Now, Susan, you converted to Islam as a young woman. Can you tell me a bit about what your first experience of fasting was like?
1: Well, my first Ramadan was actually probably the hardest Ramadan you can do in Melbourne. Ramadan shifts every year. It shifts back 11 days every year because we follow the lunar calendar. So the good thing about that is it means everyone gets a turn of having Ramadan in the shorter winter months and in the much longer, difficult, long, hot months. And so it just happened to be by coincidence that my very first Ramadan was when Melbourne was having Ramadan in those really, really long, hot summer days. We'd start fasting at, I think it was something like 3.30 in the morning and we wouldn't break our fast till about 845 at night. So I was really thrown in the deep end (laughs) with Ramadan. There was no easing into it. Uh, So it was hard, just physically. It was physically challenging in that first Ramadan. But the other reason my first Ramadan was challenging was it was quite lonely. My family weren't Muslim, they're still not Muslim. And I was still living at home, I was a teenager. And so it was difficult engaging in this incredibly difficult spiritual discipline, which is also very physical all by myself. There was no one to break my fast with. There was no one to start the fasting day with. But there was actually some beauty in that as well. It meant that I felt very much that it was just me and God doing this this first Ramadan. And so there was something lovely in that challenge as well.
0: And you were like 19, 20 years old. So you didn't have any existing Ramadan traditions to draw from. So tell us about your suhur and iftars at that time
1: yeah there were no Ramadan traditions whatsoever I was absolutely winging it <laughs> um I knew that like Muslims should break their fast with a date and water so I knew that that was you know the done thing but I had no idea about traditional foods to have to start our fast and I also had no idea about how to do things smartly like the good dietetics of a fast. I had no idea what you should have early in the day to start fasting so you'd be properly nourished and be able to fast such long days and have enough water. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was an idiot. And so I remember I just sort of swan around and get up. And I remember often just getting up and having an icy pole (laughs) and then just going back to bed. I'm like, well, guess that'll do, which was obviously stupid and made my fasting so much more difficult because now, you know, 25 years on, I now know the role of proteins and fats to have for sahur like that that first meal, to not have carbs, not to have sugar like a fool, like I did, not to fill up too much on caffeine. That was a mistake I made a couple of years later. So it was certainly um, a lot of, a lot of trial and error. The good thing was I was young. So I had the, um, I had the advantages of age on my side. It was certainly a learning experience.
0: I mean, I wonder, do you kind of look back at that young woman and are you like seriously proud of her for doing that?
1: That's funny. I've never actually even thought about that. That's such an interesting question. Um, what do I think about that woman? I don't know. I mean, I guess I am proud of her for just jumping in the deep end, for not saying, oh, I've only been Muslim for a couple of months. Maybe I I won't fast. Like I am proud of myself for saying, well, this is something I want to do. This is part of being a Muslim. I'm going to try this. I'm I'm just going to do it. And so I never entertained not doing it. I never considered that I wouldn't just fast the full thing and and just deal with the consequences. Um, And that's probably a good thing because I think if I'd mentally given myself an out, it probably would have been harder because I'd always be having that conversation in my mind. Should I stop fasting now? Should I stop fasting? This is getting hard. In my mind, I was 100% committed. And so, you know, like a marathon, I just kept running. But it was kind of like a marathon I'd done with no training and no preparation no hydrating gels, um, and I was running without good runners. But I I got to the finish line like everybody else, and I've learned a few things since then.
0: I talk to a lot of Muslims, and, you know, the struggle is, you know, you grew up with it, everyone supported you through it, and then as an adult the decision is why do I continue with it? And for you it was just this, this whole new culture and you had this commitment to it, not knowing really anything about it. So I wonder, you know, was that difficult to do those marathon fasts?
1: I did find fasting difficult physically. I still find it difficult physically, and I think that's kind of the point. I don't think it's a problem to find things difficult, and I think – You know, so much of our lives in a society like Australia today for so many of us is all about ease, absolute ease and absolute instant gratification that we don't ever want to feel any physical discomfort. And I think that's one of the reasons, side note, I think that's one of the reasons we are all on our phones all the time, because whenever we feel even the slightest social discomfort or mental anxiety, we just start to sort of soothe and numb ourselves through scrolling. I never sit with any of these physical discomforts or mental discomforts or anything like that, and I don't think many of us do in this society. Progress seems all about an unrelenting march towards ease, but I think that is doing us a disservice as humans. I think for so many of us the best stuff lies on the other side of challenge, of discomfort, of feeling uneasy, of doing hard things that don't feel good in the moment. And so that's why fasting makes so much sense and it makes a lot of sense to me that pretty much every spiritual and religious tradition has some sort of practice of fasting because the physical discomfort of fasting is not the point. Feeling physically uncomfortable and hungry and thirsty is not the point of fasting. In fact, in Islam we're told if all you get out of your fasting is hunger and thirst then you've wasted your time. The physical discomfort we feel through fasting is the vehicle to our spiritual development, to our personal refinement of our character. Fasting is just the quickest way to get us to that difficult point to make those changes within ourselves and to be the better people we need to be to teach us that discipline and to sit with that discomfort because it is on the other side of that discomfort that where the growth happens. So I still find it hard um, and that's Okay.
0: That's so spot on. You know, we do live in this hot takes culture, this instant gratification culture where everything is now, now, now. And what has Ramadan taught you about yourself and slowing down? The first thing, what has Ramadan taught me about myself? And I have to say,
1: not very nice things. <laughs> I've realised that I'm actually not a very nice person, which is confronting. Every Ramadan I am reminded anew that I'm not a pleasant person. Uh, <laughs> And every Ramadan I'm shocked. I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm horrible because the way I think about Ramadan is it's fasting in Ramadan is like holding a mirror up to yourself and forcing you to confront the kind of person that you are because things like food and drink and caffeine and getting lots of sleep are very nice sort of um, crutches or paddings to our personality. But when those things are taken away, when we're hungry and we're thirsty and we're tired because, you know, we don't get as much sleep in Ramadan often. We're, you know, up late doing extra prayers. We get up early to have that pre-dawn meal. We're tired. We haven't had the caffeine that we want and need. And it's just stripped back to bear, Susan. And I realised, wow. I'm quite snippy (laughs) and rather judgmental. I say mean things and I have a horrible inner dialogue and I think fasting takes away a lot of that external noise so all you're left with is yourself and that's awful to see for me anyway. I'm sure most people just realise they're quite lovely. I obviously have quite a lot of spiritual work to do but I think One of the advantages to Ramadan is that when else would we do this? You know, again, in in our society, which is very fast-paced and instant gratification, as we've said, and... Looking for the next thing, the next acquisition, the next step, me, me, me. We often don't have those opportunities to seriously reflect on what kind of person am I? Am I do I have the kind of character I want? And then I should have. And am I being the best kind of person that I can and should be? And if I'm not, what do I need to do about that? So Ramadan is the is the Muslim stripped bear, I guess is is how we'd put it. And again, you know, if you want, you can just get hunger and thirst out of Ramadan and avoid having those conversations with ourselves. Ideally, we would come out of Ramadan better than we went in it. So I think that's important, uh, as awful as it is is for me to face myself.
0: You're a busy woman. We all live these really highly productive lives. We're on this capitalist treadmill where we're always doing and doing and doing. And Ramadan kind of comes in and just says, halt. <laughs> you know, stop, yeah. stop everything now and commit to this, even if it's inconvenient for you. So it's a kind of a reset. I'm I'm wondering if that's something that you enjoy or that is kind of nice to be forced to slow down and, and interrupt your schedule.
1: Uh, yeah, I love it. It, it. It's an interesting challenge because on the one hand, Ramadan isn't meant to be a total removal from the world, like we should still ideally go to work. I shouldn't be saying to my boss, sorry, it's Ramadan, I need 30 days paid leave now. Like I still should be turning up to work, you know, if you're a parent, you've got to look after your kids still, you don't just get to check out for the month if you're a student. You know, I remember doing exams in Ramadan when I was fasting. That still continues, so we were still very much of the world uh, within Ramadan. But then there is also this lovely removal or maybe not removal is the right word but a clarification of what really matters and the kind of lives we should be living. It's, it's a very profound compass check in our lives. Ramadan forces us to look very clearly at our compass and go, which way am I going? Am I, am I heading in the direction that I want? It's almost like for the other 11 months of the year we feed our bodies and starve our souls and in Ramadan we flip that. It is a slowing down that I love, and I think for a lot of non-Muslims, they hear about Ramadan, no eating, not even water um, from before sunrise to after sunset, and they're just like, that sounds hideous. Why would anyone want to do that? And they can't understand why so many Muslims love it, that we actually look forward to it. It's a beautiful month for Muslims. The noise and the chaos of life just pauses, and you can take a breath and catch yourself and be more mindful about the kind of person you are and the kind of life you want to live.
0: There is such a mental load, especially for women in Ramadan, around hosting and decorating and doing things for the kids and doing things for everyone else. Was that similar for you, Susan? Did you feel a sense of during lockdown Ramadan just was more deeper for you spiritually than other years?
1: I think so. And what's really interesting is in that Ramadan, I had COVID really badly. I was sick as a dog. I couldn't get off the couch for three weeks. I was so unwell. I ended up in hospital, but even then I look back and say that was the best Ramadan I've ever had. (laughs) And I think it was because it was almost like a permission was given that we didn't have to do these things that We actually love, I love having people over for iftar. I love the decorating. I love going out for iftar. I love going to the mosque, all that stuff. But when that was removed and everyone was just given the permission to just be quietly at home, there was a real freedom in that. And and maybe that was more of what Ramadan is meant to be, that we're not cooking these massive dinner parties with 48 side dishes and it was just a a lot more (laughs) simple and restrained and there was something really beautiful in that. I
0: loved Lockdown Ramadan. No, I love that. I think that would have been really interesting. You would have gone back to your roots, you know, right right from the beginning when it was just you and the popsicles.
1: That's right. <laughs> it was just me, my icy pole and Allah. <laughs>
0: That's the title of your next book, Susan. That's it. (laughs) It is interesting, you know, we talk about food and it's not just about food. Ramadan is actually a holistic thing. It's about behaviour and abstaining from, you know, a whole bunch of nasties, (laughs) which is not easy. Um, And I love that phrase you use. it's a time when your soul feasts. It is because, again, I think it's, you know, it's just the nature of
1: modern life. It's hedonistic and busy and quick. And we have so little time just to stop and think. And this is just me speaking about myself. I know that even when, you know, 30 years ago, I would have had quiet thinking time when I'm washing the dishes or driving my car. Now I'm listening to a podcast. There's always some sort of mental stimulus happening. I'll be waiting in the line at the post office and I'll just be mindlessly flicking through Instagram or my email. There is no quiet mental, spiritual time. For Muslims, we really believe that there is an extra divine reward in doing acts within Ramadan. So we're really conscious on I don't want to waste my time. I want to make the most of this time. I want to get the most out of it and not do dumb things, watching dumb things on Netflix or looking at Instagram and just wasting my time. And we realise then, first of all, how much time we waste, but also how little time we do spend doing this important stuff. And I guess I kind of think about Ramadan like a spiritual boot camp. So I don't know if you're into sport, Sarah, but, you know, it's not unusual to hear about say an AFL team will go and do their preseason training out in the desert because it's hot and it's really Uncomfortable, or you'll hear about athletes that go and do high altitude training so that when they come back to normal altitude, they're flying. It's so much easier. They did it in the desert when it was hot and hard. So when they're playing footy in April in Melbourne, it's easy, or when they're running on the track at sea level, it feels so easy. Or the boxer who boxes with with weights in their gloves so that when they take those weights off and they're boxing. They're flying. That's kind of how I see Ramadan. As Muslims, we're not meant to backstab or swear or lie anyway. But in Ramadan, it's particularly something we should take seriously. And so I find that if I can do that spiritual boot camp, that high altitude training, where if I'm hungry and thirsty, I haven't had my coffee, I'm tired, and then I can still not swear at that person that cuts me off in traffic. Or I cannot say what I really think about that colleague. If I can, you know, control my character and control my tongue, if I can do that when I'm fasting, how much more easy should it be for me to do outside of Ramadan when I do have all those things to? to make my life easy. So it's also about showing us what we're capable of, that sometimes I think we don't give ourselves enough credit for the kind of people we can be. And Ramadan gives us a little window into that.
0: Oh, that's so beautiful. And that's so true because, you know, restraint isn't sexy in our society. And and you realize that there is so much value in not doing the thing like not saying that heated or caddy remark or not responding online or not to kind of making an outburst and there's so much value in not doing certain things and kind of exercising thoughtfulness and that's not really seen as valuable uh, today or something that is you know w- will attract attention which we seem to be obsessed with sometimes like there is a virtue in restraint
1: (laughs) yes and that is what Ramadan is Mm. it is the month of restraint but like you say it's not sexy it's not encouraged and really when else in our society or our lives at the moment are we encouraged to restrain maybe the only time we really hear it spoken about positively is around food and diet, but that's always in a very sort of um, superficial way. Don't eat this thing so you have hot abs that you could show off on Instagram.
0: I do feel like it's so true that you know, we always want like success now and, you know, the outcome now, but, you know, really valuable, important things, they need to happen over time with strong routines and, you know, really a lot of in depth work. And, and that's something that actually, you know, is a, a long term thing, <laughs> you know, is a gradient that kind of goes up little by little and something that, you know, we don't always like. <laughs> we don't always like the gradual improvement, do we?
1: Absolutely. Or even, even more so than that maybe sitting with the discomfort of not getting what we want as well, that maybe it's not even gradual, maybe that thing that we want and even think we deserve will never be coming. And sort of that sitting with that discomfort, those uncomfortable feelings in Ramadan physically and spiritually can also help us cope with those uh, bigger emotional feelings Outside of the month.
0: Speaking of uncomfortable feelings, on a lighthearted hearted note, um, there is something that you really miss in Ramadan that makes you a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> can you can you tell us about this, Susan? Your your <laughs> vice.
1: <laughs> yes, my vice is one hundred percent caffeine. I I do greatly enjoy coffee. You know, I'm Muslim. I don't drink. <laughs> I don't smoke. This is my thing, <laughs> and so it's really difficult in Ramadan not to have it. And so what I I've I've learned to do during my foolish time a couple of years after it became Muslim awesome and then I started drinking a lot of coffee what I would do is I would just get up for Sahura that fast starting meal the one that we had before dawn and I would just drink an entire French press of coffee then there would be no room for food and as I'd be walking around afterwards I could actually hear it sloshing in my stomach I drank so much so it would give me a buzz for about an hour and then I'd be cactus for the rest of the day I had to learn to stop doing that my new Uh, technique. I found these slow release caffeine tablets um, on Amazon. (laughs) What could go wrong with what's in them? And what I do is I have, I will have a drink of coffee and then I'll eat my eggs and protein, protein and other, you know, avocado and peanut butter and stuff. And then I'll have one or two of these caffeine tablets as well, just to help kick me through for the rest of the day so is that technically cheating in that you know if Ramadan is all about growing and disciplining the self that is absolutely me showing that I still have a great addiction and spiritual deficiency I beg forgiveness from the listeners. I am but a mere human, and this is the reality for me. I would love one day if I could get through Ramadan without needing to coffee load in the morning and not have these caffeine tablets. Uh, I'm not there yet. I'm a work in progress.
0: There's some serious withdrawal <laughs> symptoms that you're experiencing as a result of not drinking coffee. Wow. Yeah,
1: it's a, like, I to the extent where I remember one day I decided to fast and I didn't have any coffee in the morning. My caffeine withdrawal headache was so bad I started to vomit. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, I mean, this is a problem. This is not good.
0: Uh, don't don't be like me, kids. <laughs> no, I love it. And, you know, it's really very human because this is what we all struggle with and it's just not easy at all. Something that I've noticed about you, Susan, is that I know that outreach is an important part of Ramadan for you, you know, sharing your spiritual practice with other people on Instagram who aren't necessarily Muslim. And you do that a lot um why is that
1: i think i do it because you know for you and i sarah this is just so obvious and we feel like we've said all this stuff a million times about what ramadan is and why we do it and how it works but the reality is there are only about eight hundred thousand muslims in all of australia which means that most australians won't have a muslim friend colleague or neighbor So they don't know much about Islam or Muslims and what they do know is probably the awful stuff they get in certain parts of the media. There is a real, quite a low level of religious literacy in Australia in general, but particularly about Islam. And I also genuinely believe people are good and they're curious and when they don't know and they would like to know and they mean no harm in wondering or just not having any idea, I think people like to hear from the amount that, that of questions that I get and my own interest in the lifestyles of people that are very different to me. I know that people would probably wonder the same things about Islam. So, you know, often in Ramadan, I might do a QA and a on my Instagram just to answer people's questions because they honestly will say, I have no idea. I don't know who to ask. I don't have any Muslim friends. I've always wondered about this, but I don't know how it works. And I think the only way as a society and as a community that we can connect is when we come together. You can either build or burn bridges, and I would always want to be someone who is building a bridge and and connecting with people because I think that's what makes a community
0: hum. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I'm wondering, you know, going back to kind of your experience as a convert, you must have been bombarded on, you know, this is the way to practice Ramadan and this is the way to do it. How important was it for you to maintain your own relationship with Ramadan?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I did I I did have to find my own way. Because I was an Australian convert with none of those cultural trappings. My religious practice of Ramadan was very much a tabula rasa. It was a blank slate that I could say, well, what do I want to do for myself? What makes sense to me as as an Australian Muslim? What does an Australian Ramadan look like? And how do I want to create that for my family? You know, I've got kids now. What does that look like for us? And that's been actually really nice and fun and making it look the way that I want to look and creating my own traditions with my own kids. And it will be interesting to see what of that do they take on with them?
0: Oh, I love that. Um, And I wonder what does that look like for you? Like what does Iftar and Ramadan involve for you, Susan, and how do you practice it in new ways with your children?
1: Well, um, I make a lot of jokes about us having Vianetta for iftar, the uh, the classiest
0: Australian dessert that there is. That was a big deal when I was Same. growing up. Uh, I want you Same. to know. <laughs> it was a really big deal and it was like a very special treat. Yes.
1: Right, and you would get to count how many little ribbons that you would yes. have because it's, yes. this is a fancy day. So a lot of emphasis on Viennetta. Uh But in terms of, you know, Decorating. I noticed when I became Muslim, decorating wasn't really a thing that my Muslim friends did. It was interesting. It just wasn't something that seemed particularly common. Whereas obviously, you know, in Australia, decorating for Christmas is a really big deal. And so my understanding of what we do for religious holidays was obviously very influenced by by that upbringing. And so I really wanted to decorate my home for Ramadan and I wanted to have decorations that were dedicated to Ramadan. I didn't want to just get party balloons or Christmas tinsel. I wanted something that made sense. And certainly, you know, 24 years ago or whatever it was when I became Muslim, there was no Etsy, uh, there was no (laughs) Ramadan things at IKEA, which there are now, which still blows my mind. So we had to make our own things. I had a friend of mine who could sew and I got her to make me a bunting that said Ramadan. Ramadan Mubarak on it. I got another friend of mine who could sew to make me this beautiful Ramadan advent calendar that was such a, a, an adoption of the advent calendars that I had when I was a kid for Christmas that you'd open a door each day. We were too poor for the chocolate ones, but apparently they were a thing. We'd just open the door and have some boring picture. But I got a friend of mine to make a door, a, 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 like an advent calendar for Ramadan, for the 30 days of Ramadan, and I'd put in like little lollies for them and I'd write them little notes, like little simple Islamic lessons or things. Things like that for them. So I had this really weird hodgepodge of homemade me just trying to invent what did Ramadan mean and what should a Ramadan decoration look like. And now, you know, 24 years later, as I said, IKEA for the first time has Ramadan decorations. And I can't tell you how much this blows my mind. Kit Kat has Ramadan chocolates. I've seen those. I just ordered 15 boxes. <laughs> I don't know who I'm giving them to, but I was just so excited. And on the one hand, this is like, oh my gosh, we belong. And then on the other hand, I'm like, is this just the gross capitalist uh, co-optation of my beautiful
0: faith? Probably. look, I- I'm here. I'm here for the merch. ok. <laughs> I've been waiting my whole life for the merch, and i'm really? I'm here for it. No, it's that's very interesting, Susan, because, you know, I think it's a very diaspora experience. A lot of immigrants in the yeah. diaspora, we don't go big like our home countries yeah. where it's epic. There are movies, yep, there's, there's songs, yeah. there's lots of yeah. merch, there's massive eeds that go on for days and days and days. And so we're just like, well, that's not going to happen here. We have to make do. We're in a culture which doesn't understand yeah. what we're doing. Um, and so you're like saying, hey, no, I want to really – celebrate and I want to be inspired spiritually and I want to have my home lit up and that's really lovely yeah and
1: I think also I think I felt pressure as a as a parent I wanted Ramadan to feel like a big deal something important for my kids I never wanted them to feel that they got the the crappy end of the stick when it came to religious holidays. They look back on all our previous Ramadans and Eids with great fondness and the decorations and the presents and the traditions that we started. So I feel happy that I did that because I think that is where, that's where memories are made is, is in those, those traditions. And I, and I love that we sort of came up with some of our own. Now every year we go to a 24 hour pancake parlor to have pancakes for Sahur, for example, that's a family tradition. My husband hates it every time. He's like, oh, my God, pancakes at 3 a.m. I'm like, you get in that car and you'd be happy for our children. So every year we go to the 20 round pancake parlor with my enforced joy on the family Um, because I think those are the things. Like we're all tired and no one wants overpriced pancakes, but I imagine in
0: 30 years we will look back up and go, remember when we used to do that? That was cool. I love how you're creating new traditions, all those kinds of things, which are just so infuriating to kids, but also really joyful as well. So yes, bring them all, I say.
1: (laughs) Pro tip, when my kids were little, because the eat pro is often early in the morning, like 7am, I would put my kids to bed in their Eid clothes the night before (laughs) because I'm like, there's no time. There's no time to get up. Like you just, you are wear that frilly dress, sleep in it, deal with it because we've got to be out the door at 7am and mummy's going to go crazy. So that would be my tip to any young parents out there.
0: It it helps. Look, these are all beautiful memories that they will look back on with great fondness, I'm sure.
1: Well, will they? (laughs) Mummy's screaming at them, not sure, but I just tell them, look, I'll pay for your therapist.
0: (laughs) I love it. And we have some few rapid fire questions to end with, Susan. Okay. Um, so are you, re- are you ready? I'm ready. Where's the oddest place you've prayed?
1: I have prayed in
0: lifts where you just hope that no one will press the button and the door will open mid-prayer. Um, and what's the strangest thing someone has said to you about Ramadan? And you must get a lot of these.
1: I mean, the most frustrating one is just not even water like every time without fail. So I actually said I'm going to make a T-shirt that just says, no, not even water to preempt that question because people cannot believe that we could go without water. That's probably the most annoying, which I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be mean. Like I said, I get, people just don't know. So it's it's a genuine question, but you know, when you've heard it for the 30,000th time, it, it can start to grate. What's your favorite iftar food? My mother-in-law is Egyptian and Egyptian food is amazing. I love her stuffed vine leaves. I could eat them by the fistful. They're what I dream about during the day when I'm fasting.
0: I think that's a very delicious note to end on. Thank you so much, Susan, for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Sarah.
0: Ramadan Kareem and thank you for listening. The next episode of My Ramadan, we talk to Salia Iqbal and Lena Ali on the hipstification of fasting and the iconic Lakemba markets. I hope you'll join me for it. Hit the follow button in your podcast app and please share or review the podcast if you're enjoying it. This episode was presented by me, Sarah Malik. Our audio engineer is Jeremy Wilmot. Executive producers are Sarah Malik and Caroline Gates. If you want to get in touch, email myramadan at sbs.com.au. You can find My Ramadan in the SBS audio app or at sbs.com.au slash audio.